let me uh, go into the text. So thank you, Mike, for reading Psalm 44. And let me uh, start off with an image from a movie that you may have watched if you're uh, maybe my age. Um, back in the 2000s, um, I don't know exactly what year this movie came up, but there was a movie called Garden State, and Natalie Portman and Zach Braff star in it. And um, it's basically just a story of a guy who who finds out um, he's trying to cope with the, the death of a parent, and he finds out that all his life he's been heavily medicated. So um, he's... Uh, Otherwise, he'd be suffering from anxiety and depression, and he's trying to figure out, who am I? Um, where did I come from? Uh, what am I like when I'm not heavily medicated? And I'm not going to describe the premise of the movie to you, but there is one scene in this movie, and this is the iconic scene in the movie, which is three characters, Zach Braff, Natalie Portman, and one of their friends, um, they, they go to a friend's house, and um, he lives kind of uh, in, this, in, in front of this big pit, and... The, the scene, if you look it up on YouTube, it's just type in um, Garden State, Infinite Abyss. It sees three young people that just scream into the abyss. They're screaming at the top of their lungs. And when I saw that, when, when I was looking at t- t- today's passage, this was the image that came to mind, which is um, people screaming into the abyss. Because in the movie, no one's screaming back at them. They hear nothing when they scream into the abyss. Now, imagine yourself um, in this place where there's this huge chasm in front of you, and maybe out of sadness or frustration, you're screaming into that space. But instead of a mere scream, you're screaming your prayers, not into an abyss, but at God. And imagine that you pray and you pray and you pray, and there comes silence from God. And this is what it feels like for us many times. Sometimes maybe, or many times. Or maybe at this very moment. That we pray and we pray and we pray, and there is no response. Today we're looking at Psalm 44, which is this psalm written by an Israelite who follows the Lord, but he is disappointed by the seeming inaction of God. Um, I've had conversations with folks at this church over the past several weeks, and as I've been preparing this message, they've been on my mind because you know that there are not a few people in this church who feel very upset at God. They feel very disappointed that God has not given them the life that they want, that they ha- He hasn't answered their prayers. They've expressed disappointment in the way that things are going in their lives, and um, some of them were honest enough to say that they were disappointed in God himself. And maybe you're among them. So I've got a few things to say from Scripture today um, that I hope will be helpful. I want us to turn our eyes to God, even when it seems like he's a disappointing God. And what I want to do in the next few moments is explain on a high level what's going on in Psalm 44. And I want to look at the different sections of this psalm, and I'll be adding my commentary to the sections. I'm going to point out some of the ways that the text not only speaks to us, the text also gives us words to speak when we feel upset or disappointed or angry at the Lord, and we aren't sure what to say to him. And if you're part of a community group, uh, you will be looking at this psalm with your CG at some point in the coming weeks. So um, let's talk about the the background of this psalm. The psalm was written in the 
Well, this psalm was written as a collective prayer of the Israelites. This was written in the aftermath of a humiliating defeat of the Israelite army. And because there were so many humiliating defeats in the uh, Israelite history, we're not sure exactly when this was. There's not enough context in the psalm to, to tell us um, which exact defeat is being remembered in this moment. But what we know by looking in the text is that there was a great deal of misery that resulted from this defeat. So if we look at the text, it tells us the prisoners were deported. The Israelites were made a laughingstock to the surrounding nations. The cities belonging to Israel, they've been ransacked, they've been destroyed. And now instead of being inhabited by human beings, they've been inhabited by wild animals in the ruins And this psalm, what it conveys is this sorrow and grief and frustration and confusion and disappointment. And all these sentiments are directed at God. Because at the heart of this psalm is a complaint. Complaining is at the heart of this psalm. The psalmist is asking, God, why did you not help us like we thought you would? Why did you leave us alone when we needed you? We are in deep trouble. Where are you? Have you ever asked these questions? Now let's look at the psalm. We're not going to go through the entirety of it again, but it might be helpful for you if you have your physical Bible or a phone to um, pull it out and look at the text while I go through it. I will be referencing a uh, few verses as we go through it, so um, I encourage you to open up your Bibles. You can. Did you guys know that uh, there's like physical Bibles and that you can bring them to church? That's uh, what I try to do. It's um, so if you have that, you can bring it, open it up. So. Let me break down on a very high level what's going on in the psalm. So four sections that I see here. Um, first, the psalmist, he recalls the goodness and the faithfulness of God. Second, he affirms the character of God because of what he's ex- experienced and seen in his own life. Third, the psalmist, he laments the state that the Israelites are in, and he describes how he feels let down by God. And finally, the fourth portion of this, or fourth section of this passage, it ends with a desperate cry for help. And as we go through these sections, I want us to see how these verses give us a voice of what we might be feeling and happening, what might be happening in our disordered and hurting hearts in seasons of anger and disappointment. So... The first portion for sections, Psalm 44, verses 1 through 3. We start off with verse 1. The author speaks of the things God's people have heard about God. Verse 1. God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us, what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. So the psalmist is speaking on behalf of the Israelites. He's saying, we have heard about who God is. Our fathers and our mothers, they've told us this is what God is like. This is who God is. And this forms the basis of their understanding of God. They grew up learning that God was on their side, that he's been present and he acts on their behalf. And this is a baseline understanding of who God is and what he's done. And this is something that should matter to us. A few weeks ago, we had a family service, and one of the things I said is, um, these children, they belong to us. We want to care for our children well. We want to teach them how to follow Christ, not just as parents, but as aunties and uncles of these children, as teachers. Um, we raise them as little Jesus followers. followers. 
And we do this by telling them who God is. Even if they can't experience it um, in, in these early years, um, maybe they can hear from us. This is who our God is. This is what he can do. This is what he is for you. So this is what the psalmist starts off with in the psalm. He recalls the faithfulness and the goodness of God. Psalm 44, the next section, he acknowledges the character of God in verses 4 through 8. This is what he says. You are my king, O God. You are my king. You have saved us from our foes, and you've put to shame those who hate us. So the psalmist moves from what he knows about God and what the Israelites know about God in their heads to what they've experienced. God, we heard that you're good, and we now can say that we've experienced that goodness. We've heard that you are faithful, and we've seen you faithful in my life. This is true of you, and it's true of me in my own life. Not only is Yahweh the king of their fathers, Yahweh the God, the Lord, he is the king of Israelites now. And why is it important for us to acknowledge the things we know about God? A couple of weeks ago, I spoke from Psalm 145, and the point I was trying to make in that sermon was, we need to tell God who he is. Not for the sake of God, although God loves that, to hear that from his children, but because when we acknowledge and confess who God is, it does something to us. It reinforces what is true about God in our own hearts. The reality of who he is becomes more true when we think back on what he has done for us. And we speak it, when we, when we testify of it. So those are the first two sections. The psalmist recalling the faithfulness and goodness of God, acknowledging the character of God. The third portion, which I think is the um, the meat of this psalm, and I'll be spending most of my time here. Psalm 44, verses 9 through 22. The psalmist, on behalf of the Israelites, he expresses his complaints to God. So look at verse 9 or and 15. Let me read this to you. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. All day long my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face. The Israelites, they're saying to God, God, we went into battle expecting you to be on our side. And you weren't there. And look at us now. We've been defeated. We've been humiliated because you didn't stick up for us. You've failed us, God. All day long, my disgrace is before me. We are covered in shame. We're the laughing stock of the nations because we trusted you, and that trust did not pay off. Think on your own life. Does it seem like you're trying to be faithful? But when you pray, you hear nothing. You feel nothing from the Lord. You don't get a response. And it's not because you don't believe that God exists. You know that God exists. It's not that you're willingly sinning. You've searched your own heart and you can say, my conscience is clean. It's just that it seems like God doesn't hear. Or if he is hearing, he's deliberately deliberately ignoring you. Does that resonate with you? You can say, I'm pretty sure I don't deserve this. 
I'm pretty sure I haven't done something to offend God that he would turn his face away from me. And that's a terrible place to be. While you are in misery, while your soul is withering, while your heart is breaking, it feels like God is taunting you with his presence, but never answering your prayers. Then what? Then what if this is the case? Notice in the psalm, the psalmist, he indicates an intention to continue to praise God for what he's done, even if it doesn't seem like God is doing anything in the moment. The Israelites, they make this resolution. They will praise God when he seems absent because he's been present in the past. Verse 8, In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. There is disappointment, there is anger and frustration in the hearts of the Israelites. But there's also a resolution to give thanks to God. They're able to do this because they look back and they can recall the times when God saved them. When we're wondering if God can do anything in our difficult moments, and I think this is a principle here, we need to look back on our lives And remember what he has done in our difficult moments. If you've seen him move in the past, then we need to continually recognize that and celebrate that. Because it not only reminds us of what has happened, but it orients our hearts toward trust. When we praise God, it's not just for the sake of God. It shifts something in us. When you say, I will trust God, I will give thanks to God, despite my circumstance, it hardens, hopefully, something in you, a resolve to continue to trust God in those difficult moments. And the psalmist here, he speaks to God not simply to complain, not simply to express his doubts and then turn away. The psalmist comes to God with his complaints, He speaks to God to express his trust even in his complaints. And in fact, he trusts God so much that he will keep asking God even when it doesn't make sense to ask God. Because don't you ever get to that point that when you ask God and you ask God and you ask God and there's no answer. This was the case for the Israelites here in Psalm 44. It no longer made sense for them to ask God to act on their behalf because it gets tiring and frustrating at some point. And yet they had the resolve to continue to thank God. Several years ago, um, an author, a poet by the name of Christian Wyman, he wrote a book called My Bright Abyss. And it was... um, it's one of the, I think it sold pretty well. It was reviewed in the New York Times. It got a negative review in the New York Times because it seems too simplistic for the reviewer. But um, Christian Wyman, he wrote this book, My Bright Abyss. It was written after he was diagnosed with a rare form of cancer. And he had to figure out what to do with himself while the prospect of death loomed over him. What do you do when you're in your late 30s and you're diagnosed with a form of rare cancer and you're not sure how much longer you have to live. 
what do you do? You cry out to God. This is what he did. And this is a quote from the book. What is the difference between a cry of pain that is also a cry of praise and a cry of pain that is pure despair? Faith? The cry of faith, even if it is against God, moves toward God, and it has its meaning in God. This was the conclusion that he came to. When you beat against the chest of God, you might be hurting and you might be angry, but when you beat against the chest of God, you're also close to God. You're still moving toward him. Or you can yell at God and curse his name and you can turn away. And then what do you have? Christian Wyman's conclusion was that God is near even when my prayers don't seem to go anywhere. You guys have lived, um, most of you guys, at least several decades. And I don't need to tell you this, but in case you forgot, no one gets the life that they want. Everyone's life is filled with disappointment. And from now on until the day that we die, we will be met with disappointment after disappointment, sickness after sickness, sadness after sadness, sorrow after sorrow. And in those moments, it's our choice to either praise God and trust God in those moments or curse God and walk away. Moment after moment, day after day, disappointment after disappointment, we have a choice to make. This can be anger that shrivels up our soul. It can wither us up. Or it can be an anger and a sadness and disappointment that is still open to God, where you can say to God honestly, God, I hate you right now, but I love you at the same time. If we go after him in every disappointment with a posture of humility, knowing that he is a good and mighty God. If we go after him knowing that he knows the full picture and will make things right in his own timing. If you continually go after him, when it seems insensible, something will change in us, whether or not the situation changes. Uh, my son Zachary, he's six years old now. When he was in preschool, he was big into Pokemon Go. Um, if you guys, I know some adults still play that. And uh, if you're not aware of what Pokemon Go is, you guys know what Pokemon is, right? It's uh, all, the, all these like, hundreds of um, characters. And um, you just you grab a phone and uh, you find where the Pokemon are, right? The Pokemon characters, and and you you. You can catch them, um, and you gotta catch them all. That's the goal of the game, is, uh, you gotta, you gotta use your app to find them all. And, um, we let, we let him play with that for, for a while. Um, but there are times he would just say, we'd be out, and he'd go, I wanna play Pokemon Go. <laughs> and sometimes we'd say yes, and sometimes we'd say no. And sometimes he would keep asking, and we'd say no, and he would start crying. You can't get, you can't catch them all. We tell them. 
we couldn't give him what he wanted because that would be bad parenting. That would be terrible parenting. But Zachary was never deprived of what he really needed. Every day he got food and shelter and clothing. Every day he was given the love of his parents. Never once did we stop loving him. And in those moments of saying no, his heart was being oriented slowly by little by little, slowly and slowly. His heart was being oriented to trust his parents, who hopefully we can love him well. Because he knew that at the end of every no, there'd still be a loving parent there. When he's way past the Pokemon Go stage, he will still know that his parents will lovingly give him what he needs. And if you are a parent, if you've been around people who are parents, you know that it's bad parenting to give your your child whatever they want. You don't want your child to always get what he or she wants. It's not loving to do that. Because what do they know about life? Because you don't want your child to grow into an, an adult preschooler. What you want as a parent is for your child to grow into a mature adult with self-control and dignity and resilience and grit and kindness. And I know at this point the explanation seems a bit pedantic, right? Because you're probably not disappointed in God that you're not, you can't play Pokemon Go. What you want is much more vital and perhaps basic. What you want is health. You want a romantic partner. You want a mended relationship or a better living situation for your family. And all these are really great and awesome things. I want these things and you want these things. But you don't get it. To you, disappointment feels like death sometimes. That's what it felt like to the Israelites. Verse 22. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And in these moments, in these moments that felt like death, what the Israelites needed was not a resolution to their problems. What they needed was God himself. And when we are in these situations, what we need is not a resolution to our problems. Even though it seems like death, What we need is Christ in our pain. This particular verse was quoted by by the Apostle Paul in Romans 8. Um, This is a well-known passage, and um, did you know that it stems from Psalm 44? Listen to Romans 8, verses 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. And I can add, shall loneliness, or financial hardship, or broken relationships, or a broken church, or terrible health, can these separate us from the love of Christ? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's from Psalm 44. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And what we can have in these moments of disappointment is assurance 
that even when it seems like God is far away, he's actually very near. Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? God is near in the form of Jesus Christ. By identifying ourselves with his suffering, we become more like Christ. And we need that way more than we need anything else. The psalmist, notice the, if you read and listen to the psalm again, there's such anguish as he writes. We're regarded as a sheep to be slaughtered. Have you ever felt like you're being led to death? The pain was so bad. Maybe it would have been better if you just died. That's what it felt like. In this phrase is an echo. Isaiah 53. There was someone who was led like a slam, like a lamb to the slaughter. Jesus, the suffering servant. Jesus has walked where you are walking now. Jesus knows every pain and disappointments. He knows, he knows all the disappointment and sadness and pain that you feel. Jesus knows exactly what that feels like. And if you choose to trust God in these dark moments, if you choose to trust God in the disappointments, then you can be changed. In these moments, we need to decide if we will be changed into a more anxious and fearful and bitter person or into a more trusting, confident, and joyful person. So what will you do with your prayers? You can curse God, and a lot of people do that, and tell him off. Or you can hold on tighter. In the darkness, you can reach out, and Jesus will hold your hand, even if you can't see his face even if you don't know what he's doing in the darkness. If we choose to trust God, we become more like Christ. And God pulls us deeper into his heart, even as he pulls us deeper into darkness. But did you know that God's deepest and best work is done in the darkness? It's in the darkness that God does his deepest work. And we see that in Jesus, the story of Christ, the cross and the grave. Those are pretty dark places. It's in these places of death and disappointment for the followers of Jesus that God did his deepest work. May this be true of us. But the psalm is not finished yet. Even if we know in our heads that God will eventually make things right. And I think we all, uh, to some extent, we know that God's going to do good in our lives. It just seems really far off. It doesn't seem real, actually. So what do we do? God invites us to complain and cry out to him. The last portion of the psalm Psalm 44, he cries out, Psalm 23 through 26. Um, listen again. I'll read the, the entirety of these verses. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? 
Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Now imagine the psalmist. He is tired and discouraged. He's yelling at God. Maybe there are tears. Maybe his voice is hoarse. Maybe his hands are trembling because he's so upset. Maybe his neighbors think that he's lost his mind because of all of the pained screams. And he says to God, God, wake up, awake. And the questions come, why are you sleeping? Why have you hidden your face? Why have you forgotten our affliction and oppression? Answer me, God. Where are you? Frederick Buechner, he says this, God doesn't explain he explodes. And here he is referencing the story of Job. When he asks Job who he thinks he is anyway, he says that to try to explain the kind of things Job once explained would be like trying to explain Einstein to a little neck clam. God doesn't reveal his grand design. He reveals himself. And if you remember the story of Job, after all his suffering, Job realizes that no explanation for his suffering will satisfy him. Only God's presence will do. And his response was to repent and choose to trust him all his remaining days. And here's this hymn, God moves in a mysterious way. Listen to the verse. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And behind the prayers that you seem, that seem to be unanswered, God is smiling He's smiling at you. And the psalmist, he comes to a realization here. In the midst of all the crying out, he reminds us of this, that the type of prayer that God answers is rooted in the desire for God to be glorified. The last line of this psalm, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. The basis of the psalmist's prayer is the steadfast love of God. And this is tied to the covenant love of God for his people. God has promised in his covenant to care for his people, to save them no matter what. And God will answer based on his wisdom, our prayers, not based on how we think the world should operate. Save me, redeem me for the sake of your steadfast love. This is the final words of the psalmist. And this needs to be the reference point for us. What is a reference point for the way that you live, the way that you pray? Is it your own prayers? Is it the way that you think the world should be run? Is it your sense of right and wrong? That's usually how we pray, because we love to be the reference point for everything. But the psalmist realizes the reference point has to be the steadfast love of the Lord. The steadfast love of God, the covenant love of God says this, Though my people forget me, and they forget all that I do for them. Though they sin and though they disobey me and look for other things to give them what they need, I will not forget them. I will not continue to do good to them. I will act on their behalf even when they can't see it. My steadfast love remains. And if we look at the history of the Israelites, we know that after they prayed the psalm, God actually did save them, um, but again, they fell into sin. And their story in the Old Testament isn't wrapped up neatly. There's no happy ending to their story in the Old Testament. 
but at the right time, according to God's wisdom, God, for the sake of his steadfast love, God gave his people, Jesus Christ, his son, to live the perfect life that we could not live and to die the death that we deserved so that we would be reconciled, so that we could come before God even with our complaints. In Christ, God forgives us of our sins and he gives us everlasting life. When you get a chance, read the final verses of this psalm again and realize that this is actually the cry of Jesus This is the prayer of Jesus, except God did not answer Jesus. Jesus was innocent, yet he was accused and found guilty, so that even though we are guilty, we will be found innocent at the judgment seat of God. Jesus felt deep loneliness when there was no one to comfort him. And because of that, we have a comforter in the Holy Spirit when we feel alone and misunderstood Jesus was rejected by both man and God the Father. So when we feel rejected by man, we can know that we're not alone. And we can have confidence that we are completely accepted by the Father. Jesus cried out to God the Father to rescue him. And the Father, what did he do? He remained silent. He didn't just remain silent, actually. He turned his face away from his son. So that even when it seems to us that God has remained silent, and even when it seems that God has turned his face from us, we will know that we're not alone in darkness. And behind a frowning providence, there hides a smiling face. Jesus stood in our place on the cross, which was the ultimate place of suffering, and the place where the greatest evil and the greatest disappointment was turned into the greatest good. This is what redemption is. We can stand in our own suffering and disappointment, and there will be a lot of it in our lives. But we can know that God will redeem those moments and seasons according to his steadfast love. Jesus is the ultimate expression. Jesus is the ultimate response to our cries for help. May our lives be wrapped around that. May it be true of us. Will you pray with me? Um, God, we have a lot of complaints and you invite us to bring those complaints to you and I pray that as we do that you would shape our hearts um, into hearts that trust you that lean closer to you God Um, and I pray that this would shape us it would shape our church so that we'd better follow you and love you Uh, make this true of us we pray this in Jesus name amen